Hi, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gene Poole. There's a little Gene Poole in all of us. And uh, my guest today is Mark Kelly Smith. Mark, uh, thanks for doing this, and uh, bring us, uh, give, me, give me a little just history here, because I, I was at the Get Me High Club uh, back in the day. How did you get that particular idea? To um, be at the Get Me High? Uh-huh. Well, it's a, it's a good story. It started with a guy named Baltazar, who's an artist in Chicago. I don't even know if he's still alive, because Baltazar Castillo. And uh, I had met him at the Bucket of Suds. Were you ever at the Bucket of Suds? No. Oh, my God. Bucket of Suds. Uh, boy, I can't remember the guy who ran that. But I was on Western Avenue, and it was a place where a lot of the classical, mu classical musicians from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra went there. And I met Baltazar there. And uh, I had been... Working with a, I've been taking trumpet letters from a guy named Rick Dubkowski, and we were writing a uh, an opera about uh, Rodin, uh, Gates of Hell, and we we were working it out on a piano, the tunes. And Baltazar came over and said, "That's bullshit," <laughs> and and that started the argument. And we had a we had a a, a night long argument about art artist shit. Artist toilet paper, all this stuff. Anyways, Baltazar became my friend. Uh, we would go to all the art openings when they were on River North before River North was a big, big deal, and we'd go, "That's shit, dear. That's just commercial. That's just decorative art." You know, we were very, very negative. Anyways, I started going to, to different poetry readings, and I decided that I wanted to start a poetry reading, and he lived in uh, Bucktown Wicker Park before anybody knew what it was. And he said, I got, the right, I, got, I got the place for you to get me high. So we went and checked out the get me high, and it was small enough, that, uh, small enough that if you put 20 people in it, it would feel like this is, oh, this is okay, but you could get 80 people, and eventually, eventually got more, even more than 80 people in the, in the little joint. And, uh, that's where I started the Monday Night Poetry Reading in November 1984. That's a long answer, but oh, it's the perfect. Story. Perfect. 84. So, um, how did it evolve um, from from its from the get go? It evolved into this incredibly crafted. Um, spontaneous worldwide phenomenon, you know, but uh, take us through like just the first few machinations. Well, okay, the, so to get me high, uh, 
most poetry readings back then, all poetry readings, very few people. In fact, there were very few poetry readings that you could go to. If you found one a month, you'd be doing good. And they were usually in the basement of a, in the spare room at the library. There was a few that were in taverns, but, you know, the poet would start and everybody would leave the tavern. And they were very few people at them. You know, if you had, if you had 10 people, you were successful. And very, they were also very self-indulgent, for snobbish, cliquish. Uh, the reigning establishment poetry reading at that time was the uh, reading at the poetry, center of the poetry Center of the Art Institute. That was the main place where, where the established big shots of Chicago were at. And even at those things, if you got, if there was 30, 40 people there, you know, that was magnificent. They were very closed. Uh, you had to be inside the clique to get, you know, to get up on the stage and, and read. Uh, I'd gone to those things and, you know, what the hell? There's no audience for this. There's, here's this passionate art form that I felt is a passionate art form. And everybody's presenting it very boring, very like a professor in class. and. Uh, so I, but when I started to get me high, you know, I didn't know any better. I'm going to run it like the, those things are done. And uh, very quickly on, I discovered how selfish the poets can be. You know, the worst poet wants to get on stage and be on there for 15 minutes. Uh, so very quickly, uh, in fact, I, I took some time off and... Butchie, the owner of the Green, the Get Me High, said, I think that Monday night thing is good. you got to bring it back. I think I got disgusted, and I took off, and then I came back. Uh, and when I came back, we started where if you, if you were more intelligent than the poet on the stage, you could heckle. If your heckle was more intelligent than the poet on the stage, you could, <laughs> you could heckle. And... Then I had a practice of when I when I felt like the audience had had enough, I just break right in. I say it wasn't that great. If even in the middle of it, <laughs> I did not allow any poet to bore the audience and kill the show. All the stuff that I learned at the Get Me High was just right on the spot. Nobody told I was not from the theater world. I. I'm a, I was, as all the newspaper artists talked about, I was the ex-construction worker poet. And, uh, but I learned on the spot, I, I have, what I have an instinct for is that I can, I can judge an audience like nobody else, what's going on. And as soon as I felt like the audience was, couldn't take any more, I would do some new trick to boost the energy again. I started doing that, and then people who, um, two types of people started getting attracted. People who just were really gutsy on the stage, and also a lot of the really great writers of Chicago that were outsiders to the establishment, uh, they started coming. And uh, the, it grew from five people at the, you know, to 
like I say, nights where there was 80 people in the audience and, and more. At the same time as that's happening, I was looking around for people who, poets who had a flair, uh, just a natural flair for performing. Like I found Nancy Oparka because I saw her in an open poetry reading that she's carrying balloons. And I said, okay, she's carrying balloons. That, that'll work. And John Sheehan, who was a, ex, uh, pre, uh, a priest that got kicked out of the priesthood because he's a big, tall Irish, uh, white-haired Irish guy with a very sonorous voice, got kicked out of the priesthood because he was uh, in Texas fighting for civil rights. And uh, he was, you know, he, you know, imagine the preacher type that uh, on there. He was part of it. From these people that I found, I formed the Chicago Poetry Ensemble, cause I, which I knew, knew straight off that most, all, almost all poetry readings were just the poet on the stage, one poet on the stage reading. Why wasn't this a collective art like theater? So I formed the Chicago Poetry Ensemble, and once again, just... Inventing it as we went along, we created ensemble work that uh, not only did we perform it at the Get Me High, but we would have guerrilla runs at all the clubs where we would just show up in the we show up in the in the clubs and just start poetry right off out of the air, and uh, we must have been we must have been fairly good because nobody uh, you know kicked booted us out you know. That was the, uh, the the main get me high story. The get me high, you know, there should be books written about it because it was responsible for the kind of a uh, resurgent in the interest in jazz run by Butchie, who is no longer with us, but he was quite a character. Many stories about Butchie who uh, owned the get me high uh but it, we just the early uh, performance poets, and there was really no. There was individuals like the last, the last poets, and David Hernandez. There were certain individuals that that took performance seriously, but collectively, poets did not take performance seriously. In fact, it was looked as denigrating the poetry if you tried to perform. The criticism at the beginning was. They're just actors. They're not poets. Oh, you shouldn't emote like that. You should let the words do the talking. It was so so stupid. Uh, so it's not like there weren't people out there that 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 performed, but nobody took it seriously as part of the art. The people that me myself and the people that follow me know that. Uh, Performance is an, uh, an artistic craft also. So what slam poetry really is, is it's the remarriage of the art of performing with the art of writing poetry. You can put those two together. And from my point of view, we have a higher art form because you have all these choices of communication and performance wedded to all these choices of communication in the words. And uh, was criticized for the first... Ten years, even probably even today, there's people that criticize us for performing. 
So the Get Me High was was learning this ensemble effort to take it collectively and at the same time learned our chops on how to perform on the stage. The Get Me High closed in what, 88 or something? 88. Uh, right. So <laughs> it was a wide open place. In 19, uh, I'm performing around the city with the Chicago Poetry Ensemble at, at Places Woody's, which is now the Beat, Beat Kitchen, uh, Adolph's, which is now Estelle's in, in Wicker Park. All these, we would have one night stands around the, around the city uh, with this ensemble stuff, ensemble work. The Get Me High was very small. We wanted a bigger place to work out. I had done a show in 19 I had done a show in 1985 at Dave Gemelo's club the Deja Vu on that was on uh, Lincoln Avenue a Sunday afternoon show with the ensemble uh, that was it was very successful it got a lot of people out in the Sunday afternoon did one again in 1986 and at that one a poet in Chicago, still in Chicago, Dan Clary, who was a regular at the Irish poet, regular poet at the Get Me High. He used to do his poem and then he'd sing an Irish ballad, ballad with it. He told me at that gig at the Get uh, Deja Vu that Dave was opening another club, the Green Mill, on Sundays. I I talked to Dave. And Dave wasn't doing any jazz on Sundays because he didn't want to compete with the jazz he had at the Deja Vu on Sunday night. So I asked him if he could, if I could have Sunday nights to do a poetry cabaret show, and which would feature the Chicago Poetry Ensemble, because as you know, it's got a stage, it's got lightings, it's got you know sound system, and he and he gave me that opportunity. And I started, he opened in July, the third week of July in, in, uh, in 1986. And I, I did Sunday nights from the beginning when he opened that club uh, and been there ever since. And in fact, at the time, because of the reputation of the Get Me High and with the Chicago Poetry Ensemble traveling around the city, my sometimes my Sunday night drew more people than his Friday night, and uh, been there ever since. Dave is just a very welcoming, open person to give people a lot of chances. He gave a lot of people a lot of chances on the stage, uh, and very generous guy, and uh, and a very good friend. Uh, that's how we got to the to the uh, the Green Mill and the Green Mill show. For the first year, I think about the first year, uh, the Chicago Poetry Ensemble always had a segment in it. We, we at that time, not enough credits given to Rob Van Tyle, Bob uh, John Sheehan, Mike Barrett, Dave Cooper, uh, Karen Nystrom, uh, Nancy Oparka. There was a couple other people that were in part time, but those were the those were the main ones. We were writing, every week we were writing a new poetry, 
I called them skits. They hated being called skits, but I called them poetry skit. We were rehearsing one for two weeks later, and we were putting one up every week for probably, you know, maybe six, six or seven months. Uh, the show, by the time we got to the Green Mill, the show was so wide open that you never, you, you, you did not know what was going to happen next. In those days also, there weren't a lot of the open mic poets that had performance chops. So, so many of them were bad, and that's where the snapping to get them off the stage came along. Uh, and that became part of, you know, part of the show because people were like, who's going to get snapped first? There was always somebody that got snapped for your audience here. Snapping is not good. It was a, I made snapping uh, a negative thing for poets. You start snapping your fingers, means you're not doing good. It's kind of a joke on the Dobie Gillis beatnik thing, you know. Later in the slam uh history snapping became the thing to do it's to me it's very self-indulgent oh look at me i'm snapping i'm like i'm so hipster i don't like it but the young the young the young slammers like it uh but we had to have some kind of control not just me on the stage saying get off the stage it gave the audience permission to get somebody off the stage. If you give an audience that permission, they usually only exercise it if the person is just a real jerk or just a very offensive or just so bad, you just can't take it anymore. But that was, that was important to, to the show too because all the rest of the poetry readings is, you know, go for an hour and they clap golf applause at, at every poet. It was just dishonest. The show at the beginning was very, very honest. And it forced it forced the, all these poets to get better, to to edit their work and move on. So Well, when did the slam part of it and the judges enter into the picture? So we start we started the show with the ensemble. And the show was three hours long. And I, I had, believe it or not, I had this show that seems like it's chaos, and it was chaos. But I had it kind of planned out every five-minute integrals. It never went that way, but there was a plan. And everything moved too fast. And we get to the end of the show, and we still have, I got another 40 minutes. What are we going to do? So that happened a few times. Then I remembered that Butchie had been, uh, Butchie only the Greek, uh, the Gepihai, had been involved with the punk poets. And the punk poets had started a poetry boxing ring at the exit yeah, nightclub. I, I played there. Uh, so I, Butchie had talked about that. And I said, okay, let's, uh, let's have a competition. We'll, we won't have a ring. We'll call it, you know, we'll call it a wrestling match, you know, or do it like that. Or, you know, the idea for doing it came, came from, from Butchie and the exit, uh, the things they did at the exit. We were just doing it 
we just tried it. And the first one was by applause. It was King of the Hill. Read your poem, and then somebody will challenge you. If, if you win, you stay and read another poem, and then somebody else can challenge you. Well, this was this guy, Al McDougall, was in the audience this first night. He was a merchant marine, and he got on stage, and he kept winning. He won 11 times until Mary Shen Barnage, who would later on became a critic, theater critic for the, for the reader, she was the last one, the 11th or 12th round, and she beat him. And there was no more challenges, and we gave the money to her. And then everybody screamed, wait a minute. L won 11 times. How come she gets the money? <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was not the right way to do it. So then we, we experimented other ways to doing it over the weeks and finally came up with the, the numerical uh, scoring in that. Al McDougall and Mary did have a rematch. Don, I forget, I forget, I forget who won. I think Mary won again, but uh, we was just trial and error to do it. And the importance of it, it wasn't. It was the end of the show thing. The show was three sets: the open mic set, guest performers, and the and in her first year the. Chicago Poetry Ensemble would also do their thing. And then the capper was this crazy, goofy competition, uh, which at the beginning, you, go, you got Twinkies. That was, this, that was the <laughs> prize, Twinkies. Uh, but it, 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 kept, it, it caught on, and then we would do tournaments, and uh, it became, first of all, the newspapers, it became an easy thing to report for the newspapers. Very easy. It's hard to explain the performance poetry aspect, but the competition was an easy story. And it started to spread. And, and it did force, it did, you know, people would go off and if they were in the finals, they would, you know, want to really get very competitive about it. What was great in the beginning for, I'd say, the first 15 years is that it taught people how hollow competition is because half the time the best poet didn't win you know and you what are you winning twinkies or ten dollars and but people get i know a lot people get all like oh i want to win i gotta win yeah it would it would be an ego buster until later years what people really got uh, really got big rewards, you know. All of a sudden, they're in a, you know, on a TV show or something like this. Or it, 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 it's gone through being a great uh, diminisher of the importance of competition to being for comp competition. It, it breaks my heart that it went that way because I was so proud that hey, look at. You know, we we are teaching a philosophical lesson every Sunday night <laughs> to a lot of these poets. Uh, the competition, we kept it. The reason I kept it that first night with Al McDougall and that, because it was, we were in a bar. And you had to really deliver to shut up everybody. Nobody was told, they tell them shush now, but. Back then, nobody was told to shush. In fact, you were encouraged 
Not the shush. When you got the competition going, even the bar fives in the very back, are everybody's listening because they want to know who's, who's going to win. And the whole point of everything that I've done was to capture the audiences, to capture and hold on to the audience's attention. And for that, the competition was just exactly part of what, what we wanted to do. Well, um, I've learned a lot from you about performing and uh, about being selective of what I read there and how I read it. And um, for a while, I was trying to have it like a coach, like a slam coach. <laughs> but I wouldn't listen to him, you know. <laughs> but like when you're in the thick of it and you have like maybe three poems that you could read, it helps to have someone who's a little level-headed to say, oh, do this one. Or, But um, you've, you've said a couple of times... Uh, you mentioned like in the next two years, you were going to feature a lot of the, like bring back a lot of the best poets. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah. So it occurred to me, you know, whenever, whenever things get slow, I, I drift back to the self-consciousness I had at the very beginning of the call. At the very, for the very first, I'd say first three years, I would sit at the front door of the Green Mill and be convinced that nobody's going to show up tonight. Mary Shen Barnage would sit with me up there and, and, and coach me through it. But for, for three years, I thought, no, they're not going to show up this week. When, when it gets slow, I go back, oh, God, it's over now. I mean, how long can something run, you know? When that happened this year, I thought to myself, you know, let's face it, things could slow down or I could, you know, not want to do it or get sick or, you know, or the club could, you know, maybe Dave could sell the club. And I thought that there's so many people, it's unbelievable how many people got started at the Green Mill. Uh, there's so many people that have gone through the Green Mill, I thought, you know, instead of us letting it happen, it, it would be good if I could get my shit together and say, hey, you know, we don't know how long this is going to go on. You want to have one last shot here at the Green Mill? I have kind of informally asked a few people, and they were all kind of on board for that, you know. Now it's just a matter of me getting my People are always asking, so it's, you know, I'm already booked through October for the guest performer. So I need to, I, may, I, might, I might say, you know, that the 35th year is the year where all these greats are going to come. But maybe I'll get to it for the, in 2020, I don't know. But that, that, that's the idea that, you know, it'd be a shame for it to stop and somebody say, hey, you know, I, I wish I came back one last time to do it. How did this come to be a worldwide phenomenon? So early on, because uh, in the newspaper articles, uh, when it started to spread, uh, the newspapers 
would give an account of this. And somewhere in Germany, they got a, a newspaper article. And when a German TV crew came and was shooting Chicago, like a travel log of Chicago, they came and shot the show. Then another one came and shot a show. Then uh, uh, a guy, these two, I don't, I never met them, but I heard that they were kind of the capitalistic type. They wanted to seize upon it and start it in Germany, but they had the wrong attitude. They didn't know this is, this is grass, fruit, homespun. So they tried to do a slick version that didn't work. Michael Brown who ended up being married to Patricia Smith. It's funny, Michael, I know you don't like me saying this, but Michael Brown hated the slam at the beginning till he fell in love with Patricia, who was reigning, you know, she was the best. <laughs> then he became a slam fan. Anyways, he, you know, I might have this a little screwed up because there's all kinds of little, as the newspaper accounts and TV accounts came out, all the, you know, like I got early years, I got, Somebody in Japan read about it and they tried to start something. Somebody in the Yukon in a bar called, some guy called me from a bar in the Yukon, said, I'm doing a, you know, all these little things. But the, uh, the big root of it goes to Michael Brown and a guy, Erki Lapalanden, who was from uh, Sweden, I think. Sweden? Sweden or Norway? I Sweden, I think it was. Anyways, he uh, somehow Michael got I I got this all jazzed up, but uh, he somehow he got connected with Erki Lapalin, and Erki was hilarious. He had this poem called Silencia, and he get up there and pretend like he's turning pages and say nothing. <laughs> The first time he did it, he got like to the third page and they, you know, booed him off the stage. You know, the second time he came back, he only got one page because they knew what was coming. Uh, Michael got in contact with Germany and, and was trying to start an international thing with some people in Berlin. It started, but once again, it wasn't. It wasn't the soul of, as you know, the, the soul of the soul is, it's so grassroots, it's so, it's a happening. It's, you know, that thing that they said to hippies, it's, it's a happening every Sunday night. You got to have that ingredient to make, make stuff click. But Michael got people aware of stuff uh, in Rotterdam, too, and a couple other places. So the, the, the seed is set. Then two young people, two young guys in Munich, Ryle Potzak and Kobolinski, two very smart guys, creative guys. But in, you know, in Germany, you got that school system where if you don't pass the tests, you're not going to get into the literature college or stuff like that. Well, they started, they started it there. They spread it to Austria, Switzerland. And all over Germany, even today, Germany is the most thriving of all the slam communities, way beyond what, what's going on in the States. 
my favorite example, you'll probably heard me say it at the show, is that the I and the Speakeasy Ensemble, which was the ensemble that came after the Chicago Poetry Ensemble, we were at the Hamburg uh, National, German National Slam, which was held in a entertaining sports arena where there's 6,000 people. And was all homespun. They made a big cardboard cutout of a big mouth, which was their logo that everybody walked out of to get on the stage. <laughs> and at the end, at the reception afterwards, a guy comes, a German guy comes, hello, Mark Smith. I am a lawyer in Hamburg. And I want you to know that you made me cry. You know, so even though you're in this big it still had that intimacy with 6,000 people when they got to those most serious work, silence with 6,000 people. And uh, that's quite, that's, that's something to do. You know, you know, you can get the, you can pump up the rock concert and they can get crazy and everything, but those theater moments, that's what, you know, I call it the, those moments where there's this connection where there is no applaud afterward, or it's just like the hush, what just happened to me? That happened in this big arena. Uh, Germany, and then a couple of years later, the same organizer who's, organizers who were these young kids, I mean, in their you know, late, late 20s and early 30s, who organized this massive, it wasn't just this one place, it was a week of like performances all around the, at these opera houses, 800 people here, 600 people there, just by these kids who never did anything like it before. Two years later, they organized an outside uh, slam festival that had 10,000 people at it. Now, France is a very strong place. Italy is having a resurgence now, but it's in Brazil, uh, Mexico City, uh, in Singapore, Australia, it, it's Sweden. It's it's you can't even you couldn't even you need a a few people at the computers to keep track of where where it's all at. Wow! Did anyone ever like come to you and uh, want your blessing to to start something somewhere else? Well, you know, I'm not that kind of guy. But Chris Mooney Singh from Singapore who's a Sikh, he wanted to do it right. And I admired a guy because there's a lot of slams that go out there and they just think it's about the competition and it's, it's just bullshit. And they don't last too long because it's, it dries up. It's, it's, it's not what an audience wants to see. You know, they see, they love it at first and then it, it dries up. Chris Mooney Singh came and stayed with me for two weeks to see what it's all about, get my philosophy of it. Then he went, I think he went to Austin, Texas to view somebody else's. And then he went home and started his, his, his slam, which I was at the opening, opening, which was quite revolutionary because Singapore, uh, the Chinese are the dominant race. And the Malaysians, the British, the Japanese, they, all these cultures don't mix together. Yet for that slam, they had everybody in the room. And uh, 
He opened it with some traditional dancing and a storyteller and a couple acts and then and then he then the finale, the capper was the competition. Uh he <laughs> he had me co-hosting with him. And you know, here's Chicago Mark. I don't know what's going on with the politics. So I'm I'm messing with the Chinese and you know, the Malaysian people are going, yeah, you know, and then, you know, I, I just, everybody, you know, it, it, it just made everybody together as one person. And that's my philosophy is that, you know, it's all about everybody together and nobody, you know, we got our differences, but we're all one species and, uh, and we want to listen to everybody, you know, the unfortunate thing about, uh, things now is that uh, there's such a division in in the country that we don't get as many conservative poets in there that speak, you know, because, uh, you know, it's just this fighting, you know, it's, uh, I remember at the height of the Iraqi, what I, rem- <laughs> I remember the Sunday after the, the Twin Towers were demolished. We had every point of view from the far right that, that, you know, kill everybody to the to the far left that said, yeah, they got the right target. That's the symbol of uh, capitalism. Everyone and everybody's in the room. They don't agree with it, but they're not fighting each other. They're not labeling each other and they're not saying you can't be my friend anymore it, because it's 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 all the different voices. There's some famous guy that said you you don't get at the truth unless you have a choir of voices that you a choir of voices is going to give you the truth, not one individual or one group. And that's how the show has been based. Unfortunately, you know, it's, it's not, the show isn't far left. It's, but it's a little lefty. I'm a socialist. I always, you know, been a socialist for a long time, but it doesn't, it never excluded me from listening to, for instance, uh, you know, there's a there was a detective, a Chicago cop, homicide detective, came in and for a few weeks he was sitting at the show and you knew something was on because this was a he had this grim look on his face and then one day he got up on the stage and did this story about you know what it's like to be out there, which a lot of people don't give the cops the credit. That's the type of show that you know it, it's not that so much that way anymore. We have all kinds of different people. But it was, we don't have enough of those voices from uh, just everyday voices that are going to tell you how the world, you know, how things are, you know. Do most of the poetry slams around the world, do they kind of follow your format? Is there like a a Mark Smith style host for each one or? Oh no, they they can all be different, but they most most of the ones that succeed understand that that the host is an important aspect of it, and a show will die when the host is all about himself. You know, you see it everywhere. You know, it takes up all too much time. So, the model that I have, you know, I'm a very good host, and the people that model themselves after know that you're just there to expedite the show and let the audience know part of my shtick at the beginning was 
I would listen to everybody, the open mic poets, and I'd look for a line that, you know, I knew everybody in the audience, like, what did they, what did he just say, you know? And I, <laughs> at, when the poet was off the stage, I'd make a little comment about it. And keep it moving. And, and as you've seen, when things start to get, this goes back to the get me high, when things start to get boring, I think of something crazy to do. Like, you know, I don't think I ever did it to you, but the show, open, the open mic is going kind of slow and the open mic poet gets up there and does his thing and I know it's kind of low energy. I give him a little performance exercise. Hey, let's do that poem again. <laughs> Only do it as a clown. And, you know, so m my job has always been to, if things start, ooh, going off the rails, I try to creatively come up with something new. And I don't always succeed. You know, I fall on my face many times. But uh, uh, I think most, you go around the world, it, most successful shows have a charismatic but very uh, humble host that, that uh, knows that this show is not about them. It's about the audience. One of the things I like about you is that you cuss on stage. <laughs> That's just natural from growing up on the South Sea side. I don't, I, you know, I'll tell you the truth. I don't, I think about not doing it and I just, it's, you know, it's too, it's. It just, it brings everything to a certain kind of, you know, we're unpretentiousness, you know. Yeah, there's, a, there's probably a more intelligent way to do that. Mark, I'm curious about uh, how you came to evolve uh, as a young man and a poet. It's interesting. I, over the years, to a fault, I've kept my private life pretty private. And there's, there's people that ask me constantly about, well, who's Mark Smith other than the... the and uh, I did that in the beginning because I had really a... Uh, love-hate relationship with the stage, extreme. Uh, a lot of my early work was, you know, it fucked with reality of, you know, what's, who's the guy on stage? Is he a performer? Is he real? And back and forth. And it would really, you know, test the audience. Um, I, I came from the southeast side of Chicago. I average student. This, I tell kids at school this I didn't really know how to read till I was in I didn't even try to read a book until I was in seventh grade. The assistant principal, Mrs. Panis, made me read John John Steinbeck's The Pearl. I don't know why she picked that. But it was so the motif it, the pearl is about an islander who finds a huge pearl that's gonna make him wealthy. And it's the possession of this, the story is about the, what the possession of this pearl did to his family and the people around him. And, uh, and the motif of the book is the song of everything was this, the Islanders made everything into a song. This is the song of the morning. This is the song of uh, the feast. And this is the song of the family. And uh, my family was an okay family like any other family, you know, but it was reticent. 
Old man went to work, yelled too much. My, what, my mother, you know, was a housekeeper. Southeast side was blue collar, you know, you didn't show your sensitivity or anything. Not so much sensitivity in the family, but this book talked about the song of the family. And uh, it, it changed me, you know, yeah. And I, I had a very hard time reading because I had, you know, they didn't have the specialists there, but I had some kind of where the, the stuff jumps around. And very slow reader, very slow reader, even into my adulthood. I'm not, I've overcome it to a certain extent now that I, I have bookshelves at my home. I can't believe that. I thought I'd never be able to read one book. And I've got bookshelves of books that I've read. It's it's quite astounding. Uh I I just had I I think because they taught the same English lessons over and over in grammar school every year that somehow I had a knack for writing and it came out in very strange ways. For instance, uh they had a contest in eighth grade to write an essay. You know how they do that, Chicago Public Schools, write an essay. And the prize was to go see Dr. Posen, who was this funny scientist that was on Channel 9, go to see him at the, uh, at the uh, Museum of Science and Industry for a luncheon. And I wrote, the theme was education, education as a vehicle or something. And I wrote an essay and me and Bruce Clavin were the winners. Everybody thought that Bruce Clavin's mother wrote his. Uh, I shouldn't have said your name, Bruce Clavin, I'm sorry. But I wrote mine and got the prize. And my reward was that the teacher said to me, when we got to the luncheon, at, with Dr. They said, now, Mark, it's better to sit there and look stupid than open your mouth and be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> then I started writing uh, letters to my fr a friend, Barbara Arms, when she went to, when she was uh, older than me, would write letters to her uh, when she went away to college. And then uh, I started reading and I, in, I think it was in sophomore year, I read quite a bit of Mark Twain's work. Funny guy, you know. Then I was writing these letters to Barbara Arms in the style of Mark Twain and stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, I wanted, I, you know, that was just something I did, you know. In college, I met my first wife, Sandy. Sandy Amster uh, fell deeply in love. Uh, and she was she was interested in E. Cummings, and she was a poet and a writer. So I decided I'd better look into the poetry thing, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, and we got married. And to continue the story, sorry, Sandy, but uh, so then I then I started just writing and sending them off to magazines from the age of nineteen on, collected. 
probably hundreds of rejection slips. Used to paste them on my wall, my wall of pain. Uh, we moved down to South Carolina during civil rights time. Sandy taught in the black schools because they had pulled all the white teachers out of the black schools, and so they had to recruit teachers from the north to teach down there. I worked as a uh, uh, sharecropper, cropping tobacco, the hardest work that I've ever done in my life. We had a lot of tragedies down there and uh, ended up coming back to Chicago, got into the construction trades, started as a surveyor, and uh, then got into as a uh, associate with the Plumbers Union, but it was called uh, Instrument Man, a project engineer, and did that for, for 17 years while I'm writing, uh, filed trying to send things off and live the dream, write the novel and all that stuff. You know, I learned how to write by writing a lot of bad poetry all those years. Quit the job. Sandy went uh, teaching, and uh, I quit the job. Uh, and I got, I kind of liked being the Mr. Mom. But she'd gone back to work because I was going to really make an effort to be a writer. So we had an argument, and I said, okay, fuck you. I'm going to become a famous poet. And that was the, that was the impetus for me to start going to poetry <laughs> readings and then wow. find out, because I didn't want to read the books. Right. I went to the poetry readings to see what they were doing contemporary about poetry. So despite Sandy, who was, she was such, so wonderful at the beginning. She was such a support of uh at the beginning of the shows at the Get Me High, we 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 created a, uh, a newsletter, open mic newsletter, that covered all the different poetry groups in Chicago at the time, which were few and far between, but and they were very small, but they would, you know, our little our rag would report on the society poets and what it was like to go to their poetry reading and all this stuff and did that. She helped me do that. She designed it and helped me do that. And uh, she was at all the shows. She was at the Get Me High and, and was with me at the beginning of the, of the Green Mill, the first year at the Green Mill. Uh, I am, uh, I have bad habits that I had to shed. Uh, and those bad habits uh, destroyed my family, destroyed my marriage. So as I'm becoming very successful on the stage, a celebrity in Chicago, my uh, private uh, life uh, collapsed. I'm lucky that I, you know, have uh, learned the lessons, but the survive the the marriage didn't survive, and and unfortunately, a family didn't survive either. The kids are spread out everywhere, and so there was a, a great sacrifice, and I and it's partly due to becoming the performer on the stage because at the get me high once I got rolling, man, I had a deal. I drank for free. In fact. I would buy bypass the bartender and just take the beers out of the <laughs> out of the cooler, and uh, and then the same thing at the at the Green Mill. It, it got and it, it went too far. There you go. Answer some personal questions for yeah. Do you experience stage fright uh, early on or still? Or I did, and I I combated it by drinking. I would be chugging pints of Guinness on the stage. Uh, 
And then after I sobered up, I was chugging pints of coffee. People couldn't believe that I could knock down a pint of coffee. <laughs> I still get, I can get stage fright. If I'm in a new situation, if I get to a kind of an intimate show too early and I'm just sitting around, like when we came here, uh-huh. I was got my nose into the records and that. The way I combat it, and the way I suggest it for anybody, is that uh, you know, if you get to the point where you don't think you're going to do it, you just tell the audience, "Look, I'm scared shitless right now. I don't know what's going to happen," and that's what I've done over the years. I've just been level, being in the moment. A very important part of any performer, any all the I believe all the greats, they learn their craft, they learn their technique, and then. They learn to be in the moment. Whatever happens, don't deny it. And, uh, and, that's, and that's what I do. Uh, there's been t- many times that I just love a look. You know, I look like I know what I'm doing, but I'm very shy. And uh, I've, I've got stage fright right now. And uh, I'm just going to tell you about it. So, And then I also, another technique I You've heard me do the train poem, the nightbound, push your buttons, flip a switch. No, there's a poem that I do that's interactive. You know, whenever I'm overseas, it's always my opener because that gets me rolling. Once like, once you get rolling, you're on your way. Wow, this has been great. I'm so pleased that you uh, were able to do this. Well, you know, I, you know, you have become a regular at the Green Mill. You're very eccentric. Sometimes you're people that are eccentric, they don't know what they're eccentric, they don't know what they're doing, but we've all learned at the Green Mill that you are a true artist and you know what you're doing. And uh, not only that, you take chances and you don't have one style, you don't have the one note samba, you, you try different things and, it, it, and, and, and you also know when to get off the stage, uh, which a lot of poets don't know, but you 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 handle things very well on stage and uh i love i've always loved the eccentrics uh they get me high the whole room was eccentrics and uh you know some some you know you can be an eccentric and you could be you nuts and your ego but the people like you are what what i'm in this for is that unique individuals that are not Think in the mass thought. And that if anything is going on today, there's so many silos of mass thinking, you know, that you can find. And it's this group think that just, you know, it's they're not unique. You know, the, the Green Mill show is, well, you see it every Sunday. Everybody is... Lately, everybody's just trying to be themselves, and it's a joy. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, thank you so much for that. We're going to wrap this up here. I'm Gene Poole, and my guest is Mark Kelly Smith. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.